So welcome everyone to this week's edition of the Commercial Real Estate 101 Meetup Group. Uh, this is actually going to be the last uh, meetup of the year, which is crazy to see. Uh, you know, we started this group back in 2020, so we've been around almost two and a half years now. So it's pretty awesome to see the the engagement and consistent, um, you know, engagement we received from all you guys. So uh, again, we just want to thank you guys for all your support over the over the course of the last few years. Uh, as far as today's episode, what I thought we'd want to do is to highlight some of the top lessons we've learned over the course of the year. Um, you know, we've had almost 21 unique speakers uh, come and talk about a variety of different commercial real estate topics. So that's one of the things we're going to be talking about today. So I'm going to go ahead and share my screen so you guys can see. And let's see. I'm good sharing right now. Okay. All right. Just want to make sure. Can you guys see the uh, the image? Gonna wait a second to confirm that. Okay. All right. So uh, I think now we should be good to go. So uh, as I said before, we're gonna try to go over some of the top lessons we've learned over the course of the year uh, as it pertains to uh, the meetup and just all the the great speakers we've had over the course of the year. Uh, just to kind of give you guys an overview of, of what this group is, if this is your first time, uh, the purpose of the Commercial Real Estate 101 Meetup Group, and we also convert this into a podcast format as well, is to be the go-to resource for those interested in learning about the many facets of commercial real estate. Uh, we've had you know brokers, investors, business owners, bankers, uh, lawyers, all different types of professionals come on the show, and really people listen to the show that are interested in learning more about commercial real estate. And so that's what we're hoping to do uh, going forward and what we've, we've done over the course of the last year and two and a half years that we've been doing this. So as far as, far as some of the highlights for 2022, they've been pretty cool. Uh, we've had 21 unique uh, guests and we've converted those also into podcast uh, episodes. Uh, we've had over 45,000 downloads of those episodes just over the course of the year. Uh, we've achieved the top 10 status uh, as a commercial real estate podcast on uh, a variety of different uh uh, lists. Um, so it's kind of cool to see the the growth on that front. And uh, if you guys follow Spotify, every at the end of every year, they give you an overview of, you know, how your podcast has performed. And one of the, the statistics that they shared was that there are over 3000 unique listeners that have listened to the podcast in some form or fashion on Spotify. So that's been kind of cool. And obviously, we've released this on YouTube and, and other places as well. So it's kind of cool to see the reach that we've been able to achieve. So as far as the lessons learned is concerned, obviously we had 21 unique individuals who have been on the podcast and, and really just been in this meetup group. Uh, we couldn't highlight all the lessons learned because we'd be here for hours uh, discussing it. So I wanted to extract just a few of the speakers and maybe highlight some of the lessons that they shared uh, so that we can you know benefit from their wisdom and insight. And then obviously, if you guys want to learn more about the various different other speakers that we had, again, like I said, we have 21 unique people who have who've been uh, as part of the, the meetup. So you can gain some insights from their discussion as well. But today we're going to highlight, I believe, five or six of the individuals uh, that that shared some very, very unique insights. So let's go ahead and get started. So one of our earlier episodes in the year actually involved Bo Beery. He's a, a top multifamily broker out of Florida. And so as far as the discussion was concerned, it was centered on multifamily real estate, in particular related to investment. He wrote uh, a book called Multifamily Investors Who Dominate, and talks about the variety of different strategies that investors can employ to get more deal flow their way and build a reputation of being excellent investors, essentially. So 
Uh, one of the things we highlighted in our discussion was that uh, he just he explained why he decided multifamily over other property types. Uh, prior to him just focusing strictly on multifamily, he was more of a general generalist. So he had he he describes how he was doing eighty to one hundred deals a year, but he was doing deals you know as small as a thousand square foot office space all the way up to a, a commission, uh, a deal that would generate a commission of several hundred thousand dollars. So it was an unsustainable lifestyle. He was working his tail off and just was making good money, but the lifestyle just wasn't where he wanted to be. And so uh, him and his coach sat down and they, they isolated the different property types and determined, okay, if I were to focus on this particular property type over the next 20 years of my career, which he envisioned, that's how much he wanted to work for, uh, which one was the best to, to pursue. And he ultimately landed on multifamily because uh, the affordability of housing is becoming a problem all across the world, but in the United States, uh, ever more so. And so demand for multifamily rentals has continued to increase over the last several decades, and it's going to continue to do so as properties get less and less affordable in markets all across the nation. He also touched on the development of multifamily real estate has been lagging demand for decades. Uh, and the closest they ever got to meeting the demand for just a single year was back, I believe, in the late 80s. And they still didn't meet demand. So imagine there was, let's say there was a demand of, just, just to take a number, I don't remember that's off the top of my head, but let's say there was there was a demand for 400,000 new units to come to market. The, the developers in that particular year may have brought to market 370,000 units. So there was still a deficit, but it was the closest they'd ever gotten to meeting that demand. And ever since then, there's been a significant uh, shortfall as far as the demand versus supply is concerned. And so development is just not going to be able to keep up with the demand for multifamily. And that was the reason why he decided to pursue that as a career choice, um, just really strictly focus on multifamily properties within a certain range. Uh, as far as developing pipelines concerned, that was mainly what the discussion focused on. You know, we touched on the the fact that brokers control 80 to 90 percent of the transactions that involve they're involved with apartment buildings and this is apartment buildings that are of scale so above you know 40 to 50 units and up you know those 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 properties are not getting transacted on the internet they're not getting transacted on you know just by mom and pop operators a lot of it is building those relationships with the brokers because they're the ones who control 80 to 90 percent of the deals that are out there and so he talks about being systematic and how you approach brokers and develop relationships with them adding value etc and then he also talks about reputation because reputation is really how you start building your pipeline because the more deals you do the more reliable you are to be able to execute on those deals the higher probability you have of being able to ultimately uh, you know, achieve your goal of being a big and strong investor. And so he talks about how you, if if you want to get a deal done, you know, there there may be situations where you think, okay, well, if the property's worth ten five, and I know I can pay ten five and achieve my return metrics, but I want to, you know, try to see how low I can get the property for. Let's say I, I go for a nine nine because I think I may be able to get the deal done at that, and you lose the opportunity because someone else outbids you by a hundred grand or two hundred grand or whatever, then you know. The fact that you missed out on that opportunity is going to be significantly bad for your for your business because if in four or five years you could have sold it for four or five million dollars more, that six hundred thousand dollar delta doesn't mean anything. And so he talks a lot about opportunity costs and understanding that it's a capital accumulation game. So you got to figure about or asset accumulation game, I should say. So as as an investor, the more assets you control the bigger and badder you are. Therefore, those opportunities start coming to you more readily. So keeping that in mind as you go through the process is very important. And then finally, he talks a lot about the communication piece, you know, 
communicating with all the parties involved as you go through the process is extremely important to ensure that you get to the closing table. And if there's any issues that arise, the quicker you can communicate that to the appropriate parties, the better it is, and you have a higher probability of actually getting to the closing table. So those are just some of the the high probability, uh, the high the the high level de- uh, insights that we gained from the discussion. Obviously, he shares a lot more. So if you guys are wanting to learn more about it, check out the U- the YouTube link below, and we'll include these these slides in the show notes so you guys can have access to them as well. And all these all these uh, episodes are both on the podcast format. And we also post these on YouTube as well. So that's number one. Number two is uh, a friend of mine actually out of uh, Florida. Well, actually, we weren't even friends before we re- I reached out to him. We started discussions. And ever, ever since then, we've been periodically keeping in touch. But his name's George Smith. Uh, he's a cold storage uh, broker out of Florida. Now, cold storage has become a, a kind of a hot buzzword over the last several years. Uh, for a variety of reasons. I think one of the big reasons was during COVID, there was a huge uh, surplus of demand for uh, pick up and drop off of groceries, uh, obviously, because people didn't want to be in close proximity with one another. And because of that, grocery sales spiked. And in order for you to have fresh produce and other, other perishable items, you have to have places to store them in a safe environment. And that involves either refrigeration or freezer space. So cold storage demand shot through the roof through COVID. It was it was already upticking pre-COVID, but during COVID and just thereafter, it had a huge huge spike. And so we talked a little bit about the differences between the types of of cold storage. There's refrigeration, which means that I think it's uh, up to or uh, down to 42 degrees Fahrenheit or somewhere in that range. I don't know exact the exact Fahrenheit metric, but it's not close to freezing. It just keeps it in a refrigerated state. And then freezer is below freezing. So you have to have machinery that can operate at the capacity to keep the, the, the temperatures in that space uh, below freezing. And so the reason why you would have cold storage, as I said before, is to store food and other perishable items. I mean, the more and more demand that we have for items that are out of season, that's going to cause cold storage demand to increase as well. So he works a lot with investors and REITs that are interested in buying these properties for investment purposes. And so he talked a little bit about due diligence items for investors. Uh, one of the biggest due diligence items is understanding the systems involved with refrigeration and freezing. So there's an ammonia system versus a Freon system. I guess the Freon system is more prevalent in smaller properties and you know technicians that operate with, with just general HVAC systems for homes. A lot of those, you know, individuals can service Freon systems, whereas with ammonia systems, they're a lot more expensive, a lot more, uh, you know, technical, and and they're usually used in these large properties that involve, um, you know, refrigeration at a high level. So uh, typically, when you're looking at these systems, they can be extremely expensive. So it's really important to understand what the condition of those systems are. And in an ammonia in an ammonia situation, you have to involve someone who specializes in those systems to ensure you're not missing anything. Along with that, he, and he, he talked a little bit about other items, including electrical panels, you know, understanding that refrigeration systems require a certain level of capacity to operate. And so making sure that you know, the electrical panels can support whatever your intended use is, whether you're an owner operator or an investor, you, gives you an idea of what type of you know, refrigeration unit or freezer you can include in that space to attract a certain tenant. So things to keep in mind. Height is obviously a big deal in industrial properties, and it's, in, it's just as big of a deal in refrigeration uh, or uh, refrigeration warehouses as well. Uh, people, uh, business owners over, over time have been wanting to utilize cubic feet as opposed to just the floor space. 
So you're starting to see, uh, you know, industrial properties that are being developed to have significantly high ceilings because you can stack pallets. And so th that's no exception in a freezer environment. That's one of the things he was talking about is obviously the height of the, the ceilings, if they're, they're higher, obviously it's a lot more attractive to the, the current uh, landscape of tenants than it would be if the ceilings were a lot lower than usual. And then finally, flooring is a big, big expense. And the reason is, especially if you're talking about freezers, is that just regular flooring uh, in a warehouse is not going to cut it because freezers can be extremely heavy. And not only that, the temperature can cause cracking within the concrete. And so he describes, you know, the 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 process of getting flooring ready to be a freezer space can be extremely expensive. I guess you have to put a certain coat or, or film over it to to allow for it to operate within that the temperature range. And so, you know, involving someone who does that on a regular basis is going to be very important because it may make make the the investment not feasible. So he talks a lot about how there's a lot of people out there that have these large warehouse spaces and they're like, I'm seeing what freezer space is going for in the marketplace, like the, the, the asking rates. So I'm going to try to see if I can retrofit my warehouse to now attract, you know, that type of user. But a lot of times they don't think about the fact that prepping the floors uh, for receiving that type of tenant can be extremely expensive. And so that's definitely something to consider. And then finally, he shared some of the best resources for those individuals who want to learn more about cold storage. Uh, there's several associations out there that are focused on cold storage and refrigeration units and really that, that industry. Uh, the abbreviations of those organizations are GCAA, IACSC. And then he talks a lot about like regional and national conferences you can attend to kind of network with these individuals. So if that's something you're, if is, is of interest to you, whether you're brokering these deals or, you're looking to invest in cold storage opportunities. Those are just some to consider. So that's uh, some of the insights we gained from that discussion. And again, if you want to see the, the episode, again, feel free to click this. This will give you the, the access. We'll include in the description for the YouTube video. And if you guys want to listen to this in a podcast format, it's available on Apple Podcasts and Spotify as well. All right. So next up is Brian Lee. So Brian's actually a friend of mine and a lawyer here in Louisville, Kentucky. He's a business attorney and he's also does a lot of real estate law. Uh, that's kind of where he cut his teeth in New York. He, he's originally from New York City and he operated in the real estate space over there for many years before moving over here to Louisville. Um, and now he's working at a, a firm, a very well-respected firm here locally, uh, specializing strictly in commercial real estate. So he works a lot with REITs. He works with large landlords across the nation uh, to write leases and you know, service whatever needs they have pertaining to commercial real estate. And today's discussion, we focused on commercial leasing. Uh, as far as the, the things we talked about, uh, usually when lawyers get involved in, in the leasing process is after the term sheet has been agreed to or the LOI has been, you know, agreed to in principle, in which case the landlord would typically approach, you know, Brian and say, hey, let's draft the agreement based on these, these terms. Uh, one of the things that, you know, he talked about uh, just, just kind of, prior to that process taking place is things to consider are that landlords need to understand uh, the business of the tenant that's going to be moving into the space. So understanding what the potential legal ramifications are of that business operating on site. You know, a lot of la these landlords that are REITs and other larger entities may be a little bit more sophisticated, which, you know, they may have thought of some of these scenarios taking place. But even in those scenarios, you got to think about, okay, if I were to let this tenant move into the space, 
what are some what are some of the issues or potential liabilities that it could occur to my business? So that's one. And then obviously from a financial standpoint, a lot of times you just got to make sure that the tenant is actually going to be able to comply with all the the, the stipulations that that are present within the, the, the lease agreement. So from the tenant standpoint, uh, we also the, the good thing about this discussion is I tried to make sure that we highlighted things to consider from the landlord's perspective and also things to consider from the tenant's perspective. So from the tenant standpoint, you got to understand the landlord's motivations, you know, why, like what exactly is most important to the landlord so you can structure an agreement that's favorable to both parties. And then, you know, ultimately, uh, you know, you're able to work out uh, an LOI and hopefully a deal that works for both parties. As far as the provisions that uh, are within a lease agreement that we discussed, uh, we focused our discussion on, from a tenant standpoint, uh, capital improvements. A lot of times what happens is uh, landlords try to pass along responsibilities for different capital improvements, like uh, replacement of HVAC systems or, you know, elevators, that sort of thing to the tenant. Typically, you know, and again, I can speak to our market and he can speak also to New York. So comparing his experiences in both markets, that's typically not on the, on, on the, the tenant, uh, especially in a retail and office setting. A lot of times that should be the responsibility of the landlord to, to maintain the building to, to its appropriate condition. And so usually if he's representing a tenant, he'll try to push back or kick back on some of those items to ensure that, you know, he's not, they're, they're not having to come out of pocket significantly if in fact something like that were to occur where, where there's some damage or, or maybe the, the, the major capital structures within the, the building are not functioning as intended. Along with that, he's seen a lot of times where there are late fees and charges that are you know, kind of obscure within a lease agreement. And that's just more of just trying to claw at extra you know, revenue from the tenant. It could be, you, know, you have to provide this document within this time frame or whatever, and it could be some obscure document that maybe takes you a long time to generate. And that could lead to you potentially having issues as far as you know fees and such are concerned, and so he's always looking at those types of uh, sections to ensure that you know no unreasonable fees are being charged as a result of not being able to comply with you know unreasonable terms within the lease agreement. And then finally, one of the items that he thought was really important, and I do as well, a lot of my tenants I try to to push to try to get this in there is the assignment clause. So in a situation where you are operating your business on site. And for some reason, you, you have to vacate, whether that's your business is not doing as well as you thought it would, or maybe you're expanding too fast and it's just not, you, you're, the, the, the space is constraining you, having the, the ability to assign the lease to another party. And ultimately you have to make sure that, you know, the landlord's gonna wanna sign off on it. You know, they're not gonna just let you assign it to whoever that you want to, but at least having the, the option and the right to find uh, some other tenant that, is of equal or greater financial standing than you to replace you in, in that space can give you flexibility and give you and your business flexibility. So that's one of the things he had touched on during our discussion. From the landlord standpoint, uh, he, he encourages landlords to have a single lease form for properties. And this is something that I've seen a lot sometimes where you, you work with a landlord who has a multi-tenant center, for example, and then there's 11 tenants and they have nine different lease templates. It gets very confusing and very difficult to track what whose responsibility, what, what responsibility each of the tenants have when you have so much variability in how you're 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 providing these leases. And so he encourages landlords to consider getting a single lease form at least per property. 
So if you have a larger property that's a multi-tenant building, try to have a set lease form and then just modify that lease form slightly so that you understand, okay, for this particular building, these are the general rules that we're going to be following for each of the tenants. And I'm sure some tenants are going to push back on certain things and there may be slight modifications within each individual lease. However, at least you have some consistency when it comes to how you assess or provide um, you know, the, the leases for that particular building. Along with that, a lot of uh, landlords uh, typically finance buildings. And so lenders may put in certain requirements that they have to follow as far as the way they lease the space. And so you have to really consider that and understand that and make sure that within your lease agreements, you're complying with whatever the lender requirements are so that there's no gray area. So that if you try to go you know, sell something and, and the lender sees the documentation and those, and those uh, terms are not being followed, that could lead to bigger issues um, as far as either getting the note called or whatever else. So really making sure that you read your loan docs and have your lawyer read your loan docs and then make sure that all the requirements that the lenders put forth for you actually having that note are being followed. That's going to be very important for you to follow. And then finally, financial auditing. This is pretty common sometimes with larger tenants is that they'll require you to provide uh, you know, fi uh, audited financials, whether it's on a yearly basis, a quarterly basis, et cetera. You know, the, the, the frequency with which you need to provide those is of discussion. So if it's a larger corporate entity, they have to provide those anyway. So a lot of times they're willing to comply with those demands, but in a small mom and pop setting, you know, that's gonna be a little bit harder to do. Um, so it's one of those things where it's a case by case basis, but for the most part, a, a lot of larger landlords are going to require you to provide financial, uh, you know, audited financials to, to ensure that you're in healthy enough in that space so that they can plan uh, for the future. So, and then at the end of our discussion, we talked a little bit about some of the the things that have transpired since COVID, obviously the first force majeure, which is like a uh, act of God clause in leases. It usually covers things like hurricanes and, you know, hailstorms or really anything that is out of your control and is an act of God, you know, that could cause, you know, the lease to either be, you know, terminated or whatever else, right? So if a hurricane comes and blows up, blows the building up and it, it's no longer there, you know, you as a tenant may not have uh, an obligation at that point to you know comply with the terms of the lease because it no longer applies. You know you can't you can't operate within the space, so it, it doesn't matter. But what was happening during COVID was that a lot of tenants were trying to enforce that clause due to the pandemic. So they said, "Hey, we can't operate. We're in our homes. This is the force majeure clause. So based on that, we're not going to pay our rent." And that became a big sticking point between tenants and landlords. And I I think I remember reading an article that. It went up to like the Supreme Court where they had to rule on it because it was causing so many so many issues nationally. And so we talked a little bit about that. Uh, some riot clauses. I mean, during COVID, obviously, as, as we're aware, there were riots across the country for a variety of different reasons, socioeconomic and otherwise. And people were trying to do the same, like enforce the force majeure clause as a result of that happening. And so we talked, touched on some of those those provisions. And then ultimately, how how do you handle those scenarios? insurance is really where it comes in. So we talked a little bit about working with a qualified insurance broker or insurance company and have them explain to you how you're covered in those types of scenarios. So it was a very insightful discussion. So if you guys want to listen to, again, the, the video or the podcast format, feel free to listen right there. All right. So next up was Logan Hartle, who's a buddy of mine out of North Carolina. Uh, he's actually a two-time guest on the show. 
Uh, he talked about logistics, real estate as well. But um, in this particular discussion, uh, we talked about CRE prospecting. And uh, he is a uh, an animal at this. And he's built out systems to kind of help him with this. And, and as we always know, as we talk about, prospecting is a big part of the business if you want to be successful in the brokerage space. And so he talks a lot about how do you structure your calls, what systems you put in place to ensure that you're able to hit your numbers on a regular basis. And so that was the focal point of this particular discussion. As far as the, some of the top lessons, he talks about structuring your calls. So one of the th big things he does is he likes the time block. So between, I think he said 10 and 11 a.m. is kind of when he decides to, to utilize his time to prospect. Um, and he focuses on the tasks at hand. And for some reason, if, if he needs to modify that because he has to meet with a client and there's no other time they can meet, he'll, he'll you know, fill that time with whatever he needs to fill it with. But then the first priority he has is to reschedule that time elsewhere. And so that's what, one of the things he talked about in his discussion. Along with that, he likes to structure his calls very uniquely. Uh, you know, I know when I first started, I would just call people up and say, hey, are you interested in selling? And those, I didn't get much success on that front. In his case, since he's in the investment space, he's usually calling these owners that own buildings as an investment. So what he'll typically do is call them and say, hey, my name's Logan Hartle. You know, I'm an XYZ broker with XYZ uh, Realty Company. Uh, I wanted just to call call to see if you were if you're currently and actively buying more properties. So he would actually try to provide them with value by saying, hey, I'm actively talking to people on a regular basis. So if I find something that fits your criteria, I'm happy to loop you in. And so he has had a lot more success with people providing him with criteria and understanding of what they're looking for. And then at the end of the discussion, he may say something like, you know, do you have any properties that you, you just kind of are kind of a pain in your side or anything like that? That you may be interested in, in, in disposing of. A lot of times they'll say no, but sometimes they say, yeah, you know what? Actually, I do have a particular property that I really don't really like or don't want to keep, or maybe I want to leverage that into something else. And so that's something that uh, you know has been successful for him. So that's kind of how he structures his calls. As far as the following up system is concerned, you need a CRM. I mean, uh, customer relationship management software. Uh, you know, obviously there's a variety of different ones out there in the marketplace. Uh, I think he was using. Um, he was looking to use pipe drive. I use pipe drive as well, but, uh, you know, what he, what he typically does is he calls through a list of particular individuals. And then based on whether or not he reached them, he will set a follow-up reminder, whether that's weekly, bi-monthly or monthly. And you could do that in a lot of CRM systems is you can set tasks for yourself to do, you know, months in advance or weeks in advance or however long in advance you want. And then every morning you get to your computer, you log into your CRM. And it has your task for the day. And so you just follow that task. And every time you complete a task, you, you, you check the box and then set another task for yourself to complete in the future. And so that's kind of the, the structure that he follows. Along with that, he talked a lot about how does he optimize systems in his business? He's an industrial engineering major. I actually was an industrial engineering major too. And so we kind of nerd out about it, but really it's process engineering. The, the way you run an effective business is to modify and create processes. And so in his case, he utilizes an effective CRM system and then he incorporates technology in the way he runs his business. So he has robo dialers. I think ring.io is the one he uses. And the cool thing about that is it can, you essentially fill in, a, you, you, can, you can upload a list of people that you wanna call that has their numbers and it just starts robo dialing. So it'll call one person and then, you know, if they don't answer, it'll drop a voicemail that you pre-record and then you move on to the next one. So he's able to get through 40 to 50 calls in maybe less than an hour because most, most people don't answer. And so 
that's kind of how he pro uh, he goes through the process. Whereas normally, if you just wanted to make a call, you'd have to dial the number and then call, and then they don't answer. You leave a voicemail. It may take you, you know, three, four, five hours to to make those amount of calls because it just takes time for you to be able to, you know, physically type in everything. And so that's the way he utilizes his systems to maximize his business. And so I thought it was a very insightful podcast. I would highly encourage you guys to check it out. If you guys want to, as I said before, we'll include this in the show notes. All right. So next up is Patty Asai. Uh, she's actually a friend of mine. We, we uh, connected through the podcast, actually. Uh, she was on my other podcast, the Commercial Real Estate Academy podcast, and she provided so much value that I thought, uh, why not uh, just, you know, have her come back to talk a little bit about, you know, uh, SBA loans. So she's an uh, SBA. She, she handles SBA loans uh, through, for, through her bank. Uh, in uh, California. And so the, the focal point of the discussion was pertaining to SBA financing. Uh, so what are SBA loans? Uh, the two flagship products of the SBA are the 7A and then the 504 loan. And the, the, the focal point of the discussion was pertaining to commercial real estate. You know, with a 7A loan, for example, you can buy businesses, you can, you know, use it for working capital and so stuff like that. So it's not necessarily strictly focused on real estate, but kind of the focal point of this discussion was like, okay, how can you use the SBA to purchase real estate? Uh, so the way that she described it was that typically what she'll do when she talks to a business owner is if it's a riskier property type, as she described it, so like car washes, gas stations, hotels, restaurants, really a, a building where you can't retrofit it into a, another use very easily, usually you, you'll typically go with a 7A product. Um, whereas with the 504 loan, um, if the property can be reconfigured easily, usually you go with that. And there's benefits to going with the 504 versus the 7A, but the 7A just gives you a little bit more flexibility. And so those are some of the, 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 the tips that she shared on that front. And I know in other markets across the country, uh, ground leases are very prevalent. So, you know, maybe someone has a piece of land they don't want to sell. They just want to lease the ground for many, many years. Um, that is also something that the SPA can cover so you can develop a property on the ground as long as it as long as it um as long as the 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 lease is as at least as long as the 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 note so if you if you sign a 20 year note you got to make sure that the lease is at least 20 years most of the time you're going to want to make it a much longer than that but at least if the lease if the lease length is at least the the length of the note you can typically work um with the SBA to get something done so as far as securing SBA financing, this is one of the things that you know helps to expedite the process because SBA financing can take a little bit of time, more so than, than conventional financing. But if you have all this stuff ready to go, and if you set expectations with your clients early on, you can usually have this done pretty quickly. So three years of personal tax returns, uh, business uh, resume, and then you know PS, PFS, I should have, that, that's not PSF, it's PFS, personal financial statement. She also likes to see three years of business tax returns, any business projections you may have for the for the future, and then a business plan. Uh, you know, usually if if you're just acquiring real estate, the business plan is not going to need to be super comprehensive, but at least it's going to have to have an idea of how you're going to utilize the space going forward. And so that's typically what she likes to say. And also, SBA is a product for owner users, so you can't just buy an investment multifamily investment property with the SBA. You, you have to have your business occupy at least 51% of the space. So that's why, you know, 
car washes, for example, self-storage facilities, there's an operating business on site, and that's why they're typically covered with the SBA. But unless there's an operating business on site, the SBA probably won't be a good option for you or your clients or whoever else. And then one of the big lessons to take away from this is that anytime you're seeking financing, it's important to be honest. She's had a lot of situations where people give her information and they leave out certain details and then 45 days into the process, they find out that particular detail and it blows up the entire deal. So it's one of those things where it's better just be honest on the front end and try to see if you can hash out the, the, the issues before you start getting too deep into it versus waiting until the 11th hour and then you're in it a lot of time and money and everything else. And then the deal falls apart because, you know, you find something out that wasn't, uh, you know, you could have hashed out at the beginning. So something to consider when you're going through that process. And again, Patty had some great insights. So I would encourage you guys to listen to the podcast episode. Next up, so this is the second to last one before we open up to Q&A, because I'd like to kind of get your guys' take on, on, the, um, on the lessons learned. Uh, it's a friend of mine locally, uh, actually one of my business partners, we started an Airbnb property management company, but his focus on the podcast was related to the Airbnb process. And Barrett, uh, he owns about eight Airbnbs locally. So he's been an operator for quite some time. So he shared some insights as pertaining to short-term rentals and then how do you operate and manage those short-term rentals over time. And so some of the things to consider, uh, you know, as, as, as COVID and everything has kind of pulled back, um, I think that there's been a lot more people that have, that have realized, oh, you can make a lot of money with short-term rentals. And it's somewhat counterintuitive because, you know, when COVID hit, everyone was like, oh my gosh, no one's going to travel. No one's going to do anything. But from 2020 to 2021, there was, I mean, the, the short-term rental market went gangbusters and there was a lot of people making a lot of money in the space. And so what ended up happening was people started realizing, oh, you can make a lot of money doing these short-term rental rentals. Um, so a lot more of the short-term rentals started coming online. And so we talked a lot about the saturation of markets across the nation. Uh, and what happens right now, we're kind of in a period of flux and there likely is going to be an economic slowdown in the near future. And so he talks about, you know, things to consider because, you know, if there's, if you have a saturated market where there's a lot of different Airbnbs and travel, I mean, is one of the first things to, to go when the economy is not doing great. So how is that going to affect the Airbnb or short-term rental market long-term? It's likely going to make it suffer um, over the course of the next few years. And one of the things he talked about too, is that location amenities and the service you provide to your, to your tenants or your clients are going to be more important than ever. People are going to be expecting a lot more when it comes to these Airbnbs or short-term rentals, I should say, than they were in the past. And so, so one of the things he liked, he shared, which I think was very important, is how do you build out your operations? This is a hospitality business. And so you have to make sure that it is a well-oiled machine. So if someone comes Thursday and they leave Sunday, you need to have you know cleaners that go in there to clean the space. You have maintenance people that go by every other month or week or whatever. You can have a certain cadence, however you want to handle that cadence, but they need to have maintenance people that go on site periodically to make sure that the there's no holes in the walls and general maintenance items are getting taken care of because, again, you're going to have a lot of people walking through the space and there's going to be wear and tear that occurs as a result of that happening. Along with that, making sure that you document your processes so it's easy for people to follow. And if for some reason, you know, a cleaner falls off, like they just can't handle the the they either don't want to clean anymore, or maybe they're just not doing a good job. You can plug and play and move people in and out 
and make sure that you're not really skipping a beat because you have those processes already documented, whether that's in word format or maybe even in, in video format to kind of showcase what your expectations are as an owner. That's also very important. Along with that, we shared some insights related to tools to maximize Airbnb's performance. There's a lot of technologies out there that can help you improve revenue and streamline operations. And so we talked, touched on some of those key items. Uh, channel manager, I think is one of the most important. And what a channel manager is, is it allows you to connect a variety of different booking platforms on a single software. So, you know, you could broadcast your, um, your, your listings on Airbnb, VRBO, booking.com, TripAdvisor, really all these different types of booking platforms. So you get the maximum reach for your listings. So that's one thing. And you can utilize, you can have all your customer messaging and everything be on one platform. So it's a lot easier for you guys to manage. And so, you know, there's many, many channel managers out there. You can do your own research as far as which ones would be most appropriate for you guys. But that's something to consider if you are going to seriously consider uh, building an Airbnb portfolio or managing Airbnbs for other parties. Along with that, because you have a lot of people going in and out of your property on a regular basis, um, secured access and security technology is more important than ever. Um, there's there's certain things that are, that are remote locks, for example, where you can Wi-Fi enabled locks where you can change codes so that people can access the, the property and then that code gets erased when a new when a new tenant comes in, for example. That's there's a lot of technology out there that can handle that. Um, Barrett's big on cameras on the front and back porch, for example, to 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 capture things. So if something happens, you have some documentation of what occurred so that you can file a claim with insurance or, you know, if if you know, God forbid something worse happens, then you have evidence to be able to provide to the authorities or whatever else, right? So in, incorporating that technology within your business is going to be very important. And then finally, you know, we've probably seen in, in, in the marketplace, if you guys are in the Airbnb space, there's dy dynamic pr pricing engines out there that help you to price your properties effectively based on what other properties are being priced at and the demand for that particular property in that area. And so considering also incorporating a pricing or dynamic pricing software could be of value as well. So those are just some of the lessons. As I said before, you can listen to this further on another, uh, on the, on the episode itself. All right. So, and then finally, um, you know, we've had a lot of great speakers, so I, I definitely don't want to make light of this, but I think, you know, we had a really good discussion. Um, actually our most recent, I believe podcast episode was with Bo Barron. Uh, he's actually, he was actually my CCIM professor. Uh, when I went through the process in um, 2021, I believe I took 102. He was my CCIM 102 professor, and so he I thought he provided so much value that I was like, we need to get him on the podcast to talk a little bit about the CCIM Institute and the things that they offer to the marketplace. So first off, we discussed what is CCIM. It's actually a designation. It's called Certified Commercial Investment Member, and the purpose of the designation is to help brokers and bankers and lawyers, really anyone involved in the commercial real estate industry understand how to analyze and, and uh, you know, how to analyze investment opportunities within commercial real estate. And it also has components related to site selections and demographics and market analysis, et cetera. So that, that's kind of what the, the purpose of the designation is. I always describe it as, you know, think of like the CPA or CFA, but for commercial real estate. Um, so that's kind of how we were describing it. As far as the requirements are concerned, there is edu an education component involved. So you have to take uh, the coursework, CCIM 101, CCIM 102, CCIM 103, CCIM 104. There's a negotiations course as well. 
And there's also an ethics course you have to take. And then finally, there's two electives that you take, and that's the education portion. Uh, what I didn't list there, which I think is important to note, is the volume requirement. So if you are, uh, if you have three deals that equate to a total of, I believe, $30 million in, in value, then you meet that qualification. If you have 10 deals that you've completed that equate to $10 million in value, then you also qualify for the, the volume requirement. Or if you do 20 deals and there's no dollar value volume requirement, then you've also met that requirement. So there's the education component and also the, the volume component. And once you meet those two, you can apply to, to secure your CCIM designation. And once you submit that application, then and, and on the website, you can essentially see what requirements you have. Uh, you would have to take a test. And if you pass the test, then you ultimately secure that designation. As far as why we thought, you know, it'd be important to kind of discuss the CCIM designation is because, you know, a lot of times when you take education, you don't understand why it applies or how it applies. I know when I went through my engineering curriculum in college, I remember I was in classes and I was like, I'm never going to use this stuff. Like, there's no reason to, I mean, I'm not going to be designing stuff that needs differential equations. It doesn't make any sense. But in this case, it's very, very valuable because this is actually applicable skills that you're going to utilize within your business. So we talked a little bit about what some of the skills that you're going to benefit from, you know, securing this particular designation. So one of the first ones is investment analysis. So number 101 and 104 are really investment driven. So you talk about, you know, how do you calculate RR, cash on cash return, you know, do uh, projections for financials, et cetera. What, how, if, if, if you sell at different scenarios in different years, how does that affect your return metrics, et cetera? So it, it gives you an idea, uh, it, it gives you the tools to paint a picture for your client or for your investors, for that matter, if you're looking to raise money to buy real estate, it helps you paint a picture of different scenarios so that you can utilize metrics to then convince your clients or investors or whatever else, whether or not this opportunity is worth pursuing. So that's number one. Number two is market analysis, which is what Bo is so excited about. And that's 102 is focused on market analysis. So it, it kind of goes into the, 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 it focuses on you know understanding how demographics are going to affect future demand for real estate, uh, understanding you know from the site selection standpoint why would one site be better than another site for a particular use, and that's all market driven. And so it gets really granular into different areas to determine okay if you know five thousand jobs are coming to this particular you know place for example how what is that going to mean for demand for different product. So how much more multifamily product is going to need to come to market to satisfy that demand? How much more retail is going to have to come to satisfy that demand? And there's different ways and, and different metrics out there that you can tap into to kind of give you an, a pretty good idea of what that looks like. And if for some reason, let's say in that scenario that you need 15,000 units to cover an additional you know, six or 7,000 jobs that are coming to an area, and you, only, you know that there's only four or 5,000 units in the pipeline from a development standpoint, there's a huge delta between what the, the projected demand is going to be and what the current satisfied, um, you know, the satisfaction is for that demand. So it gives you an opportunity as an investor to say, okay, well, if I develop multifamily product in that environment, it's, it's going to get filled and it's going to, you know, be beneficial for me and my business. And you can apply that same logic to industrial. You can apply that same logic to retail. And there's different ways to access the data to make that determination. So thought it was an extremely valuable um, discussion. As far as, you know, uh, 
getting involved and and not only getting involved, but getting some of these stuff, this stuff paid for, because it is pretty expensive to get your designation. I think all in, you're looking at between, you know, seven to maybe 10 or 12,000, depending on whether or not you have to travel. So if, if the class comes to you you may be on the lower end of that scale, but if you have to travel and hotel and everything else, you may be on the upper set end of that scale. So you know, there are, you know, local organizations, you know, there's local CCIM chapters, and then obviously the national uh, organization that offers scholarships and opportunities for people who qualify to either get part or all the, the of at least one or two classes paid for. So I know I got a local scholarship for one of the classes. So that completely paid for one of them for me. So I would encourage you guys that if you guys are interested in getting your CCIM Look at join your local chapter, inquire about different scholarship opportunities, and then, you know, apply. You know, I didn't get it the first time uh, when I applied, but I just kept applying and I eventually got it. So it's worth worth pursuing. All right. So that was a mouthful. I, I know I talked a lot, so I wanted to give us an opportunity to kind of discuss some of the top lessons you guys have learned in 2022. And then, you know, I'll, I'll be checking the chat box and uh, LinkedIn as well to kind of share. All right. Any any top lessons you guys learned? I'd love to hear the discussion. I see Franklin said, Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you too, my friend. All right. Well, it looks like I'm checking the. Okay. All right. Well, if there's no more questions or discussions, I guess we'll, uh, we'll wrap it up, but uh, tenant finance. Oh, okay. So yeah, we have one. So tenant. So Joshua asks tenant financing during inflation. That's a great point. I mean, there's a lot of people that, you know, I had a deal in May that almost fell apart because of that. Uh, we had a lender that had committed to a particular interest rate. And then, um, you know, obviously the Fed started pressing, pressuring uh, with the increasing the federal funds rate. And, you know, the bank decided, hey, we're not going to commit to this rate anymore. We're actually going to charge you or, or give you a rate of, you know, one and a half percent more. And that almost killed the deal for us. And I'm sure that that happened all across the nation, not just us, but luckily we were able to square it away. But I mean, it's no joke. I mean, there, I'm sure there's a lot of deals that fell apart as a result of that, especially over the last six six months or so, if I had to guess. Okay. Well, awesome. Well, thank you guys so much. Uh, it's been an honor and, and privilege to, to get to know you all uh, over the course of the year. You know, obviously, you know, we're very appreciative of the engagement that we receive on a day to day basis from you guys. Uh, we will continue to do these series in 2023. So we do this every other year, every other month, I should say. Um, we invite speakers to talk about a range of different topics. So if this is your first time, I encourage you to come back. If this is more than if you come here regularly, continue to come back and engage. Uh, we're going to go ahead and push this live on YouTube and uh, Spotify and Apple Podcasts and such by tomorrow. So you guys have, we'll have this available to you to re-listen to if you'd like. And uh, we look forward to seeing you guys in 2023 and wish you all a very prosperous 2023. Uh, happy New Year to you all and your families. And we'll see you all next time.